Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Richard Bell, the author of Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. It was a finalist for both the Tubman and Washington Prizes. He's written three books and is a professor of early American history at the, at the University of Maryland. Thanks so much for being here, Richard Bell. Thanks for having me, Evan. Much appreciated. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Okay, Richard tells the story of Sam, Joe, Cornelius, Enos, and Alex. They were five boys living in Philadelphia in 1825 who were taken by slave smugglers and brought to the Deep South. If you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave about Solomon Northup or read his memoir, you can get a sense of the panic that these boys must have felt. Richard's book opens with the sentence, Cornelius Sinclair was 10 years old and trapped. He was stuck in the belly of a small ship bobbing in the middle of the Delaware River it was dark below the waterline, but he could see enough to know that he was not alone. Four pairs of eyes stared back at him, four other black boys. Yesterday, they were all free. Today, they were slaves. How did they wind up on that ship, Richard? It's an extraordinary story, uh, Evan, that I was totally unprepared for when I came across it in the archives almost 10 years ago uh now and you mentioned there solomon northup's story 12 years a slave which is a useful way into thinking about what's distinctive about the true story told in stolen because what happened to solomon northup in the memoir uh, and the movie 12 years a slave all of which is true uh is something that actually happened to thousands maybe tens of thousands of other free black americans living in the united states between the revolution and the Civil War. The only thing exceptional about what happened to Solomon Northup, the protagonist of 12 Years a Slave, uh, is that he was a highly literate, prosperous, middle-class uh, adult man when he was kidnapped. And the last 10 years of my life spent researching this phenomenon of the kidnapping and enslavement of free African-Americans in the United States is that these kidnappers, these traffickers, actually many of them specialized in abducting and stealing away free black children. So that is who Cornelius, Enos, Alex, Sam, and Joe are. The oldest of these five boys is 15 years old. The youngest of them is eight years old. And in the space of about two or three hours, uh, one summer's afternoon in August of 1825, a gang of professional people snatchers target each of these five boys in turn, uh, who are going about their business out and about on the streets of Philadelphia, which to be clear is free soil in a free state uh, in the northern United States, and uh, lure them onto a small ship with the intent of um, uh, enslaving them, carrying them over a great distance. Ultimately, many of them will end up in Mississippi and Alabama um, for the purposes of passing them off as if they're legally purchased enslaved people uh, and selling them to people who want to buy more uh, black people as slaves in the cotton kingdom that's rising up along what was then the Southwest, which we'd now think of as the Gulf Coast um, of the United States. This trade in kidnapped free persons is big 
business and it's been hiding in plain sight in the archives and libraries across the United States for uh, almost 200 years. And I was trying to dig it out. The crazy thing um, to think about is that as horrible and petrifying it must, as it must have been for Solomon Northup, he was an adult. We're talking about children here. Um, uh, the most important term, I guess, for all of us to learn that's in this book is the reverse Underground Railroad. We know that the Underground Railroad is, the, at least in the way it's commonly used, is the way, is the way that African-American slaves liberated themselves in the antebellum era through a network of, you know, for the lack of a better term, smugglers. Um, they were led to freedom. What is the reverse Underground Railroad and how big was it? Yeah, so this uh, term, which, and the term reverse underground railroad pre-exists my book Stolen, but it's certainly a term that I lean on in uh, this book because I find it provocative um, and useful as a way to get readers to think about the scale of kidnapping and trafficking into slavery of free black adults and children. We're all well aware by now, I hope, Evan, that the Underground Railroad, the good one, the famous one, the Harriet Tubman one, um, was an enterprise of significant magnitude that um, historians who've been studying the Underground Railroad for the past hundred years or so um, estimate that many tens of thousands, maybe 40, maybe 60,000 people uh, liberated themselves, um, as you put it, from slavery in the period between the Revolution and the Civil War. And sadly, it turns out that the scale of um, kidnapping and abduction of legally free African-American people from northern towns and cities was of the same magnitude that, again, over that period in the decades before the Civil War, we're talking about tens of thousands of um, people. And Do we know how well, close it was in terms of numbers? We, we don't. We don't. So I talk in terms of scale and magnitude because that's the best we can do. And there's reasons why we can't be more specific, more precise, of course. In both cases, when we're talking about the um, Underground Railroad or whether we're talking about kidnapping and enslavement, the reverse Underground Railroad, we're talking about activities which were clandestine, covert and illegal, actually, in both um, cases here, right? So counting the extent of illegal activity has always been a great challenge for scholars and historians in all different fields, right? If you think about any illegal activity in the United States in 2020 or 2021, um, counting just how common it is is actually extremely difficult. And the same is certainly true for um, not just modern day human trafficking in the 21st century, um, but pre-Civil War uh, human trafficking uh, before the Civil War. So in both cases, we are keenly aware that the scale is enormous. And you heard me talk in the scale of tens of thousands. But putting precise numbers on something so secretive um, and uh, illegal um, is something that I think I, I would never do uh, while I'm being recorded, Evan. <laughs> okay, I'll ask you afterwards, but I won't, I won't publish it. Um, the way you describe Philadelphia in the 1820s is so interesting. It is, on the one hand, this basket of freedom, but it's also perilously close to the border. Um, what place did Philadelphia hold in the United States for those who are African-American? Yeah, this is a completely fascinating question. The first thing readers should know, again, is that Philadelphia is the largest city in Pennsylvania uh, at this time. It is uh, free soil. Pennsylvania has, 
enacted gradual abolition uh, beginning in 1780, and by 1825, there are effectively no legally enslaved people um, in Philadelphia um, uh, anymore. And yet, uh, Philadelphia is only, what, 40 miles away or so, depending on which direction you go, from um, Delaware, uh, which is a slave state, from Maryland, which is a slave state. It's also, by the way, where I live now. And it's much closer uh, than that to New Jersey, which in 1825 is still a slave state, which is abolishing slavery incredibly slowly. So that means that um, the proximity to slave states is very uh, great. Um, the proximity to danger, enslavement, and trafficking is perhaps particularly acute in a city so close to so many slave states. But on the other hand, Evan, it's a bastion, a magnet, a mecca even for free black um, people across the United States who've um, come to Philadelphia in large numbers over the previous decades seeking sanctuary from American slavery. If you're enslaved in Virginia, if you're enslaved in uh, Maryland, like Frederick Douglass uh, and Harriet Tubman both were, and you're trying to run to a free city, you go first to Philadelphia, uh, actually. And many free black people actually stay there and build lives there um, because they have strength in numbers. Philadelphia's free black popu population is enormous by the 1820s. It's about 12,000 people. It's the largest um, free black population anywhere in the United States. Um, and numbers do bring you certain protections and comforts, right? Uh, you can build your own churches. You can um, uh, maybe build your own schools. You can build a community in every possible sense. And there's no sense in the 1820s that there's anywhere better in the United States that you could go than Philly. So it's so a borderland. What was happening in the broader United States as it relates to slavery? Just briefly, just describe this sort of flashpoint that we're at in 1825, where the United States really can go in several different directions here on this. That's exactly right. So a fulcrum, you know, a seesaw would be the British word for it. And I'm British, obviously. Um, so we're talking about a period between the Revolution and the Civil War when there's been enormous change uh, in the history of American slavery. We've seen one northern state after another slowly dismantle slavery under great pressure from enslaved people themselves. So by 1825, almost every northern state has successfully dismantled slavery. New Jersey is really the last holdout. Um, but south of Pennsylvania, when we think of the Delawares, the Marylands, and everywhere further south of that, we've actually seen slavery grow and thrive, even though legal importations of black people from overseas have been outlawed since the year 1808, slavery is growing in the states of the American South through natural increase, which is through reproduction, um, as one generation of enslaved people give birth to the next generation of enslaved people, so that the enslaved population of the United States is growing very quickly between the revolution and the civil war, even as it's uh, no longer um, being allowed to grow or thrive in the northern uh, states. So we see a sort of bifurcation, we call it sectionalism, right? The north going one way when it comes to slavery as a legal institution and the south going another way. And therefore that borderline between north and south, which is roughly the Mason-Dixon line between Maryland and Pennsylvania, becomes ever more important. It matters which side of it you're on. How did American law make kidnapping a more um, potent venture, a more yeah. um, worthwhile venture for the smugglers? 
So it's important to, that, we, that we stipulate here that kidnapping is illegal everywhere. There's no state of the union where the kidnapping of uh, anyone, whether they be African-American or Caucasian, is legal. However, um, my book reveals that kidnapping went on all the damn time anyway. And the legal systems in many southern states um, effectively worked to protect those people who made their livings as um, kidnappers and human traffickers because um, every southern slave state um, did have some anti-kidnapping laws on the books which seemed to dangle the possibility that if you had been illegally kidnapped and smuggled into southern slavery that you could have your day in court uh, and liberate yourself and march back to freedom triumphantly. These are called freedom suits, the idea that you can claim that you've been wrongfully enslaved and march your way back to freedom with a judge's support. But as you might imagine, Evan, in practice, access to freedom suits, access to legal knowledge, access to lawyers um, is incredibly difficult to achieve. And that's going to be even more true the younger you are and the less you know about the American legal system and how it works. So it works to protect kidnappers and traffickers and, and smugglers who make their livings um, stealing free black kids like Cornelius Sinclair, who you mentioned, into southern slavery. The chances that they're going to know they can ever hope to have their day in court are almost infinitesimally small. Isn't it interesting that there is um, there are laws on the books against kidnapping, but the question is how the law is going to be enacted? And we seem to run into that all the time, um, different kinds of laws in this in the present day. Um, why were why were children like Sam, Joe, Cornelius, Enos, and Alex so susceptible to being lured away from this free soil state? That's an important question, and again, it's one of the central findings of my book: is that um, the kidnapping and enslavement of children was incredibly widespread and common. And when we think of you know victims of America's reverse Underground Railroad. I hope we don't only think of people like Solomon Northup, adults, that we think of children too. Um, and the reasons are twofold. Number one is that demand in the American South, in the slave states, for the um, unfree labor of children was remarkably strong. We tend to assume that um, planters down in the Cotton Kingdom wanted only you know, uh, young African-American men in their 20s who were big and strong. And that's just simply not true. If you think about what cotton picking actually involves, it requires stamina and dexterity, not massive amounts of physical um, strength. If people remember the movie 12 Years a Slave, the most valuable cotton picker on that cotton plantation is the character played by Lupita Nyong'o, who in real life was um, the person she plays in real life was 13 years old when she arrived on that plantation. Um, so demand for young people, um, meaning people under the age of 16, was incredibly strong. But the vulnerability of free black children in their home states, like Philadelphia, and this also happened, let's be clear, uh, almost everywhere in the North. You can find cases like this in New York, um, in Boston, in Chicago, in Pittsburgh, in Cleveland, you name a place with a free black population, and I will show you too much evidence of how common kidnapping of free black children was. But the vulnerabilities of free black children um, were, were staggering because um, this is a period when the racial climate in northern towns and cities was deeply inhospitable to free black families trying to carve out 
a living, trying to build communities with uh, other people from similar backgrounds. But the job market um, is uh, suffused by discrimination against um, African-American job applicants. Um, the educational system does not really allow free black children to go to school um, or give uh, their parents and families places to uh, worship. So this is a racial climate in which uh, white people generally turned a blind eye to anything bad or evil that is happening to their African-American neighbors. And so when kidnappers, people snatchers come into these communities, uh, there aren't going to be many white bystanders who are going to intervene to stop a kidnapping um, like this. In fact, we can find a tragic amount of evidence from um, white contributors to newspapers in this period, letters to the editor and things like that, saying they're glad that free African-American adults and children are being kidnapped from their streets because they consider them a nuisance, a criminal element, and they just want them gone. So those are some of the obstacles. So how did the journeys of the five proceed then? Let's get back on that boat um, with them. Um, you described, as I read at the beginning, Cornelius um, being in the dark, looking across the way and seeing um, four other black children looking back at him. And they know, I would assume, that they're in some danger now. Um, if we could have been on the ships, on the ship with them and on this journey with them, what would we have seen? What did they go through? So th they went through hell, as you can imagine. And reconstructing that ordeal, that journey from freedom into slavery, from the north into the south, from Pennsylvania into eventually Mississippi and Alabama, was at the heart of what I'm trying to do in this book. And um, I tried to uh, get into the uh, hearts and minds of the five boys as much as I could when telling this story for um, readers. And I should say for the record that only, uh, we think only two of these boys knew each other before this happened. And again, they're very young. The youngest is eight years old. The oldest is 15. Um, their journey on a piece of, on a map uh, is fairly straightforward. Uh, that ship takes them to the interior of the Delaware, uh, Maryland Peninsula, um, where this gang, a very active, prolific, um, skillful gang, has two safe houses where they warehouse these five children for a while. And then this gang ships them onwards across the Chesapeake Bay um, to Norfolk, Virginia. And then two of the gang's members march these five boys and two adult uh, women who they're also trafficking across this vast continent we have from Norfolk, Virginia, down to Alabama, Mississippi, where they try to sell these five children as slaves. Um, in the book, I have a lot to say about what that journey was like, and I want readers to understand what it was like to be made to walk 15, 20 miles every day for two months, three months, four months. I want uh, readers to think about um, how an 11-year-old boy processes the dislocation, um, alienation, psychological trauma, but also the physical hardships of that journey, which were extraordinary. Uh, and I, I should tell readers here that um, some, though not all of these five boys will survive this ordeal. Um, and extraordinary things will happen in the second half of this book that I'm often a bit cautious about revealing uh, in conversations like this, Evan, because I want people to understand that, um, uh, make that discovery for themselves. But some, though not all of these boys will survive this ordeal. They will uh, make what my book's subtitle refers to as an astonishing odyssey home to Phil. Philadelphia, beating the odds, um, 
Stories that begin this way normally do not end with any of the victims of trafficking, kidnapping, and enslavement returning home to their loved ones, but occasionally they do, and this is one of those times. One of the notes at the beginning of your book is that you hope readers understand when you are trying to infer things. Um, let's try to infer a little bit here. Um, you talked about the physical toll. Um, I want to ask about the mental toll. You've got, um, this is why the notion of slavery is so uh, hopefully foreign to um, everybody listening, um, because in order to have slavery in a system of it, you have to create a notion of ownership in another, in another human being. Um, some people were born slaves. These young boys were free one day, um, and the next day, they're, here they are, and they're told that they are owned by somebody. Um, how do we process that from a distance of 150 some odd years, 175 years? Um, and uh, also, you know, you and I, we should say, are both Caucasian males. So I don't want to go too far in trying to infer that and in, in, to infer the feelings, but let's take a stab at it if we can. Sure. And obviously, that's an important question that when you're writing a book like this, you want to ask and be able to pr provide some robust answers to. And so, you know, I certainly began with the boys themselves. Um, I gestured just now to the extraordinary second half of this book when strange, unexpected and rare things begin to happen. Uh, and part of what's unusual in the second half of the book is that two of the uh, five boys are able to give testimonies uh, to people they think are going to help them um, extricate themselves from their enslavement about what they have experienced. Um, and these testimonies survive. Each one is about a thousand words long, give or take. And uh, they are the two central features, central sources, I guess, around which this whole book, Stolen, is um, centered. Because they do provide the sort of brief, episodic uh, insight um, into that uh, young person's um, experience. Um, I wish each one were longer. I wish each person reflected a lot more about what was going, going on um, with them. But we're lucky to have these accounts at all. And accounts effectively authored by children, which come directly from the children's mouths, are extremely rare in American slavery. When we think of um, accounts of American slavery, we're often thinking about someone like Frederick Douglass, who's writing decades after his experience, about what he remembers as a child 30, 40 years um, earlier. So accounts written by children or authored by children, then transcribed by other people, are incredibly rare. So of course, they sit front and center in my own understanding of what it was like. We also, I've mentioned Northup a few times in this conversation, Evan, Solomon Northup's account of his own experience as a free person being kidnapped into slavery, and he was in his mid-30s when this happened to him, is extraordinarily rich. Um, in part because of his, you know, maturity. Um, so he writes in great detail about what his emotional odyssey was like as he confronted that creeping realization, Evan, that he's uh, no longer a person in the eyes of the Lord. Now he's a person with a price on his back, right? And he's had a target on his head. Uh, and so his own 
dawning realizations, um, which he later recalled in his memoir about what it was like to be on a ship and try to figure out how you're going to get yourself free and realize that you can't, realize that the odds are stacked against you is heartbreaking. And so I tried to imagine what an 11-year-old boy would, ma would make of similar um, circumstances. I'll make one more point on this, which is that in the book I spend, um, the heart of the book is actually a two chapter length reconstruction of the journey from roughly Philadelphia to roughly uh, Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, it takes four months. It's the worst four months of these children's lives, obviously. Um, one of the sources I was able to bring in to flesh out this portrait of physical and psychological um, dislocation was perhaps a bit unexpected because in the 1820s, um, there were many rich white European tourists visiting the American, visiting the United States and visiting the American South in particular. They'd ride around in fancy carriages going from say Washington DC down to New Orleans um, on a sort of grand tour. And they'd all um, have notebooks with them and they'd all write about every strange American thing they ever saw out of their stagecoach windows. And so when they're traveling along roads, from, you know, in the interior of Tennessee, the interior of Alabama, on their way to New Orleans, um, what they see out of their windows sometimes are these convoys of black human beings walking, trudging, chained at the foot, usually, um, under the supervision um, of white captors, often heavily armed, driving them ever further south. Many of these human convoys were of legally traded enslaved people, but some of them were likely of illegally kidnapped um, free people like these five boys I write about. And these European tourists, Evan, they would write about these convoys. And every time they saw one passing by the window of their stagecoach, these European tourists would use the same metaphor to describe the look on these people's faces as they trudged slowly past their carriage windows. They would say, always, the people outside my window looked like they were in a funeral procession. And that idea that grief is written on their faces, I think is something that stuck with me as I was trying to burrow my way into the hearts and minds of these uh, children aged between eight and 15. At one point, there is this grooming scene that you describe where there's an attempt to like shine them up so that they're more appealing to the people, um, you know, to the people who are gonna buy them. Um, Cornelius is one of the, and I don't want to give too much away, um, but Cornelius is one of those who sold, um, you know, I guess just describe a little bit, if you can, as much as we know about what Cornelius then experienced once he is sold. So let's just first start with, with the grooming, right? We know from all sorts of firsthand accounts of legally traded slaves uh, who made that journey from Maryland, a slave state, to Mississippi or Virginia to Alabama, that grooming by slave traders before they'd be put up for sale in a, uh, in a showroom in New Orleans or an auction block in Natchez was extremely um, common. And grooming takes every sort of form, right? First of all, it's physical, right? You uh, get a, a change of clothes. You give people uh, who've been on the road for months uh, the, the wash, the bath, the scrub of their lives. Um, you cut their hair. Uh, we have an account of one slave trader who puts pink ribbons in the hair of an 11-year-old girl to make her look more appealing to um, uh, buyers. Anything they could think of. Part of this is psychological preparation. They drill, um, especially kidnapped free people, with new stories about 
who they are. They give them new identities, new lies to tell about uh, where they came from and uh, how they're definitely not legally free, but how they've been legally bought from somewhere further north. Um, this is the lie Cornelius is made to um, uh, repeat when he is successfully sold by his enslaver uh, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for I think $300. Um, uh, and Cornelius will spend many months uh, trying to figure out what on earth to do next. And again, he is at the time, I think almost 11 years old. I have a seven-year-old daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter, and um, uh, it terrifies me to think about the very limited options and conceptions of what is possible that a child as young as that in such a new disorienting location uh, might have been able to uh, conceive of. Um, and yet some of, the, some of the people in this story do transcend their circumstances, do fight their way back to freedom. And when they do, Evan, the survivors of this story will blow the whistle on their um, kidnappers and initiate, with a lot of help, a manhunt to bring some of these people to justice. There are two sides to this. There's what Cornelius is thinking, and there's, you know, there is a legal structure in the states that he's in, but there's also the side of it in Philadelphia and in um, Pennsylvania. Um, how does, without giving too much away, how does the legal tide start to turn? And I was particularly moved by the mayor of Philadelphia. Yeah, so it's very rare for the legal tide to turn in the favor of a free black person kidnapped and trafficked into slavery from somewhere like Philadelphia. Someone who ends up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, usually does not return from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, from Natchez, Mississippi, um, except for when they do. And when they do, it's because usually of their own, obviously, um, uh, courage, but courage is usually not enough. It usually does take all sorts of uh, allies and, and serendipity. Uh, and that's true in this case as well. And we know that the survivors of this particular case in Stolen um, benefit from the assistance, most notably of their own parents, um, members of the free black community back in Philadelphia, who we know, of course, are lobbying um, relentlessly, anxiously to get anyone in Philadelphia, anyone they know, um, to do something. Because, of course, free black people themselves have almost no political capital and leverage. Um, in this very racially sort of segregated um, uh, city. So they have to put pressure on people with more political influence and power than them. Uh, and many times those campaigns to put pressure on political leaders, for instance, uh, the mayors of cities in the north, for instance, the governors of states in the north, for instance, police chiefs or their equivalents, they come to nothing um, because of the toxic racial climate that you and I have already um, described but sometimes the stars align. And in this particular case, the stars align because they put pressure on um, an individual whose name is Joseph Watson, who is the recently newly elected mayor of Philadelphia. Um, I think I'm right in saying he's the last Quaker mayor of Philadelphia, or at least for some time. Um, and his politics are a little more progressive and a little different from some of his predecessors and some of his immediate successors in that role. Um, he seems to have a particularly um, a particular sensitivity for helping children in distress. And I speculate onto the, as to the sources of that sensitivity, but we can see it time and again in the decisions he makes as mayor. So to put this more, very boldly, Evan, 
the Mayor Watson, the mayor of Philadelphia, will step into this case and advocate for these children and their return and rescue at a time when it was extraordinarily rare for someone as senior as him, someone as white as him, someone as powerful as him um, to do that. His predecessor in the job of mayor when confronted with similar kidnapping cases did, as far as we know, absolutely nothing. And his successor in that job would do less than nothing when confronted with similar cases. But this guy does. And it's part of what makes the outcome of this case possible. Um, talk a little bit, if you can, about, um, well, I was reminded of Frederick Douglass's descriptions of when he liberates himself and winds up in a free, I, I think it was New York, but forgive me, but uh, he describes what it's like to be a free man. Do we know the reaction of, um, I'm not going to say which ones or how, but do we know the, do we know the reactions of what it felt like to be free again? So you do, do say you do say on the cover, their astonishing odyssey home. So oh, there might right. be yes. some I could say. I, um, I want people to understand, first of all, yeah. this, as again, that some of these uh, five boys will survive this ordeal and make that astonishing odyssey home. And again, I want people to understand how rare that is, which is why it's in the cover of the book, because it's so extraordinary and rare. Um, but I definitely wanted to tell readers what that moment of reunion um, with their mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers was like, even though none of my uh, voluminous sources that I was able to uh, excavate for this project um, told me exactly what it was like for person A or person B or person C of those uh, five boys. But what I did have were the accounts of other reunions um, from the tiny number of other um, survivors of the reverse Underground Railroad and made it back home. And Northup, again, is extraordinary on this. Um, Northup's been away 12 years. Um, my, the, the boys who survived this will be away about two years. Um, but Northup had been away 12 years. And 12 years is an extraordinary amount of time. And of course, he left, I think, two uh, children um, behind him uh, and a wife. And they had all had to resume their lives in their own ways. Uh, and when Northup was um, reunited with them, when he walks into the door, uh, uh, through the door of his old house, um, he then writes about, you know, the tears streaming down his face, the look on his wife's face after 12 years uh, away, and the look on his children's face. One of those children, of course, does not recognize the man who's just walked in um, the door uh, here. Uh, the other child is, is grown up so much that the child is now married and has a child of their own. And of course, the name of that child is Solomon, that they've named after the missing uh, grandfather. And so I used accounts like that to imagine myself into the scene of the reunion of the boys who survived this ordeal, and to imagine it from the perspective of the parents who are seeing their most cherished uh, of children uh, return to them against all the odds uh, and how the parents must have not only rushed to embrace these children with their own tears streaming down their face um, but must have also um, reminded those children that we never forgot you we never lost sight of you we did everything we could uh, to get you back um, and this is a joyful joyful uh, day so that scene of reunion I think uh, is an important bookend to this otherwise nightmarish story how much do you want to say about the fate of the gang and of the kidnapper, John Purnell? Yeah, I'm quite happy to talk about the fate of uh, some of the um, monsters, I think. Uh, historians don't often talk about good and evil 
in American history. I tend to believe that most of us are very complicated individuals and shouldn't be easily lumped into one binary or another. But when we're thinking about people who steal free children for a living, um, I you're not them. going too far. Go yeah, ahead. You can go that far. Yeah. Um, free, so at least on this show. <laughs> the, uh, the, the survivors of this uh, story, as I said, Evan, do an awful lot, given how young they are, to actually um, wrench the wheels of justice in the direction of pursuing some of these um, monsters after they return to freedom in Philadelphia, and with some success. Now, the gang they're targeting, the gang that has done this, to these five boys and to many other children and adults over a 20 year period of activity is actually quite large and quite sophisticated. Um, and so the efforts of these boys to give testimony um, about their perpetrators, to name names, um, does achieve some extraordinary effects. And several of the gang members will be brought to justice as a direct result of these children's testimony against them. But it's also true that with any criminal enterprise, um, many people in that gang escape justice, uh, literally escape as in they leave the state, they disappear, they fall off the radar, history loses um, sight of them. Um, so it's a very mixed bag, which is to say there's no clean, let's all tie this up with a bow ending to this story. This um, particular odyssey, as I said, does not mean that everyone survives it, and it does not mean that everyone who perpetrated it is brought to justice. After this hits the papers, and it does, the, the, there's a lot of coverage. Of course, the mayor of the town is of the city is talking about it. So right there is a, you know a, a certain level of notoriety, um, and there's an incredible scene of the mayor giving this farewell address where he reads the list of kidnapped victims. Um, what is the legacy of the act itself of kidnapping children? Does this case make a dent? and at least help the future of the children who were you know, still free and in, in areas like that to not be afraid of being kidnapped, kidnapped? It absolutely does. Yes, that's such an important question. So the outcome, the significance, the so what of this particular case is actually outsized. Um, so number one, because of how much attention it does garner and generate in the newspaper press of the day, um, uh, and because of the partially successful outcome from the boy's perspective and their parents' perspective, um, you see, I think, free black communities be ever bolder in their demands that these things not be allowed to recur, that free black communities take ever more initiative themselves to form effectively, you know, neighborhood watch organizations, paramilitary protection organizations designed to deter kidnappers from ever setting foot in their communities again, which is a new strategy in um, what we call practical abolition. Um, but within the larger anti-slavery movement, Evan, we also see um, white activists um, inspired by um, this particular episode um, try to make the apathetic, indifferent, white northern reading public um, give more of a damn about southern slavery and its persistence. And they do that by um, trying to popularize the idea that kidnapping is the fundamental feature of American slavery, not only of free black kids like Cornelius being literally kidnapped, but any time a slave trader purchases a slave, he is ripping it from its uh, mother or father, and that slavery itself is not a legal institution, it's an illegal institution, it's man-stealing, it's kidnapping, pure and simple. So this idea that slavery is kidnapping, nothing more, nothing less, becomes ever clearer in anti-slavery writing after 18, 
25. And more narrowly, we see some important legal changes in Pennsylvania, um, the passage of something called a personal liberty law in direct response to this case. And it's a law that antagonizes slave traders, southerners, slaveholders, more than any other state law passed before the Civil War, and in its own way brings on the Civil War because it directly brings forth the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which I would argue is the single most important cause of the American Civil War. Yeah, and that was my next uh, question, which you know you mentioned an outsized impact on the future of slavery and of kidnapping and of this institution. Um, but just talk a little bit more about how this story has the unintended consequence of moving the country. If you can believe one single kidnapping of five children in a, in a, on a continent with thousands of these happening and millions of people in slavery, how does this one case move the United States closer to a civil war? Yeah, so if you look at the beginning and the end, you would say this case in 1825 and then the Civil War in 1860. But of course, a lot of things happen in yeah. between those two points, right? right. Uh, and I don't want to say this is the single cause of the Civil War. Let me be super clear about that, right? There are uh, many allied uh, causes, but one piles on top of the other and the snowball moves and grows. Um, so this case um, brings on an 1826 personal liberty anti-kidnapping law in the state of Pennsylvania designed to make sure that cases like this never happen again. It doesn't work uh, and it's challenged in court uh, in 1842, a, a court case that goes to the Supreme Court called Prigg versus Pennsylvania. Um, and that Supreme Court case um, upholds the idea that state-level anti-kidnapping laws are unconstitutional and so can't be allowed to stand. Um, and yet certain states that have passed these anti-kidnapping laws, like Pennsylvania, try to keep theirs on the books anyway, basically ignoring this ruling from the Supreme Court in 1842. Uh, and that act of dissent from states like Pennsylvania and New York bring a tough retaliatory response from the federal Congress, which is controlled by uh, Southern slaveholders um, in 1850 in the form of a powerful, robust new law called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which does many things, but one of which is it makes it open season for kidnappers to pretend that they are legal slave catchers uh, in pursuit of runaway slaves, even if they're not, they're just brazen kidnappers. So that's how we get in a couple of steps from 1826 to 1842 to 1850. Uh, the title of this show is Axel Bank Reports it's such an important uh, question, and there's no one single answer. I hope readers will read this book stolen for themselves and uh, reflect on your question themselves. Um, you know, my own answer is to say that one of the things that came home to me in the course of 10 years of research for Stolen was just how fragile um, African-American freedom was on free soil, in free states, in place where slavery had been dismantled in the previous um, decades that you can be legally free in Philadelphia or in Boston or New York, um, and yet um, that uh, liberty can be seized from you, stolen is the title of my book, um, by uh, kidnappers and predators uh, who wish to treat you like, a, like property, like a person with a price. Um, that is 
something that I think has resonance, that echoes with the way we live now. When we think about the vulnerabilities of African-American uh, people and other you know, uh, black and brown communities in our country in 2021, um, who um, are trying to uh, build um, lives in freedom, but have that freedom, I think, um, ripped out from under them by all sorts of um, agencies and institutions um, from um, you know, uh, the threat posed by mass incarceration on down. We can think about the separation of other types of families on our southern border over the last three or four uh, years by agencies of the federal government and see echoes in the division of families um, in slavery as well. And then we could also think finally about the persistence of actual slavery and actual human trafficking around the world um, today. Slavery is illegal everywhere, and yet it continues. And that was true in Philadelphia in 1825. I have to reflect on why this seems to come up so much in, uh, on my show, um, but I ask a lot of memorial questions. Um, I have, I've had a couple of Washington scholars on, and I asked them how they would redesign the Washington um, Memorial. Uh, I just asked somebody if they were going to design a memorial of Grover Cleveland, what would that look like? Um, I want to ask you, if you could design a memorial to the five boys, what would that look like? That is a question, Evan, I've never received before. And I've been talking about this book for two years uh, now. So my goodness. Um, I think that memorials are always problematic because it's so hard to convey complexity and subtlety in a static um, site-specific uh, uh, subject and no one, a uh, site-specific site, and no one wants, you know, six plaques to have to explain uh, what it is on earth you're looking at. So I generally feel that memorials are not always the best way to get um, uh, the American public to reflect on um, why they should study American history. You know, when I talk about this subject to my students, it's in the course of a 30-part lecture series. Uh, it's in the course of writing a book that took me 10 years um, uh, to do. So, you know, boiling this down into the sort of, you know, visual equivalent of a, of a soundbite often I think is, can be really um, uh, limiting. So what I would say, Evan, is that I'm really, I want us all to think of museums as not static places, but as dynamic places where historians' interpretations of the past are constantly shifting and being represented to the public. So instead of a memorial, uh, I'm really pleased in the last, what, 10 years of my life on this planet here in Washington, D.C., near where I live, we've seen the opening of the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is committed to telling complex um, uh, stories, hard stories uh, about America's white supremacist uh, past and the freedom struggle. And I'm very pleased to say that the uh, existence of America's reverse Underground Railroad is part of that story on display in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, next time you're in Washington, go down to the basement um, galleries and when you see the big Thomas Jefferson display, turn around and look behind you. There's a big display on the wall about the kidnapping of free black people into slavery. So I hope as many people will pass through that, um, those subterranean galleries and learn about how the um, struggle against slavery uh, and the struggle to build a better world is the fundamental story of American history. 
Let's let's say the names one last time. That would be a memorial to them. Sam, Joe, Cornelius, Enos, and Alex, Richard Bell, thank you for telling us their story. Thank you, Evan. Richard Bell, the author of Stolen Five Free Boys, Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home. Uh, certainly check out that book and also his website, richard-bell.com. He's also on Twitter at r underscore j underscore bell. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.